want you to know, Pastor Wilson, as I reach for this table, I have the song, you know, I want to be like Pastor Wilson on this table, so be good. I like it. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 uh, through 22. Yes, that's right, 22, got it. Listen now for the word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And they left him and went away. Word of God for the people of God. You know, a while uh, while back, I had found a spare coffee mug uh, in the office. And I say spare because it was in the common area in the church office. And if you've never been there, there's a lot of abandoned things. That's like, I think it's like common in, in church offices or offices in general. You just have abandoned mugs. So they're like the best type of things you can go and find for yourself, right? And I found a, a very nice mug. It's not this mug, but I'm going to tell you a story about the mug that I found. And I have to make a quick confession real quick. I'm sort of a, a connoisseur of mugs, of coffee mugs specifically, right? A nice mug for me can light up a room when you walk into it. Uh, it can make a really great, help you make a really great first impression. They can make you seem a little more stylish uh, or, <laughs> or a little more sophisticated than you actually are, right? They can also make you feel amazing about what you are going to put into your body, even if what's inside is not that great, okay? I know this is too much information, but this is how I feel about coffee mugs. Now, the only thing wrong with the mug that I found was that it was a particular color. It was a maroon mug. It was a Texas A&M mug. And as much, is there nothing wrong with that? Well, we'll we'll talk about that, yeah. (laughs) And as much as it pained my heart, uh, my burnt orange heart to put my lips upon this maroon mug, uh, yeah, the mug carried enough nice qualities within it that I, I just, it was my mug for a little while. But one day I decided, uh, I, I didn't decide, we have our staff meetings, and I was on my way to a staff meeting, and Kaylee, our youth director, caught me right as I was about to enter, and she did what she normally does. She says hi and scares me, um, and she was like, Pastor Matt, I've been looking everywhere for that mug. And then it hit me as I looked at the mug, and then I looked at Kaylee. Kaylee is an Aggie. I just remembered, right? And, and for me, don't get me wrong, Aggies are, are I, they're some of the best people I know. But the thing about Aggies is, is that you always know when you're in the presence of an Aggie. 
They, they kind of just walk around with a certain aura of, of agginess, right? They're the type of people that, that walk around with their, uh, their college garb, um, their swag, for years after they leave college. And I'm not talking about that they just go and get uh, new uh, clothes. No, they have the same exact ones that they had in college. And if you talk to them long enough, um, they will tell you stories about Texas A&M uh, as if they happened yesterday. You, you actually get kind of lost in time because you don't know what, what, did you graduate 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then sometimes if you're around an Aggie long, long enough, they spout useless trivia like, um, did you know that Texas A&M saved the great state of Texas? And did you know that the great state of Texas, as we all know, saved the United States of America? And the United States of America saved the world. So they deduce from that, that our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, along with Texas A&M, are saviors of the world, right? It's a lot like talking to someone that does CrossFit a lot. All conversations eventually come back to CrossFit. I can poke fun and tease all day, but it is a powerful thing how a school can imprint their likeness on a person, that wherever they go, whatever they say, however far they travel, they can look back and say with confidence that uh, they have a shared identity as Aggies, right? Like, like Haley, she can say, this is my alma mater, and you can't take that away from me, as she would say, even when you take my coffee mug, Pastor Matt, you know? Our scripture reading today is a tricky scripture. Jesus' famous words, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's, has been used for years, uh, reinforcing people's stances on where they stand maybe on the, the separation of, of church and state, right? You may have heard it said, um, don't bring your politics to church. And they maybe cite this scripture. Though I've always taken people to mean that fairly literally when they say that. Like literally, don't bring your politics. Mine are fine, as long as they're here. Um, they might also say things like, uh, your faith shouldn't form your political stances. And I find a lot of these assertions too simplistic. So I want to take some time this morning uh, to break open this verse a little more because I think, I think it's a little more nuanced. Uh, I think there's more here than meets the eye. And I want to preface this with first reminding us of something, which I think we all know, and, and that's sometimes Jesus' words to us are hard. Uh, sometimes Jesus' words to us are hard to swallow. Um, and they are hard often because they cause us to uh, reflect inwardly. If we, if we allow Jesus to kind of open our hearts and our minds to certain things, we often are convicted of who it is that is ultimately in control, who we are in that revelation, and what we ought to do about those things. And as the passage implies, in our amazement, we are often faced with a choice. Now, from a chronological perspective, our scripture is situated right after the parable of the wicked tenant, which we heard from Elizabeth not too long ago, uh, and the parable of the wedding banquet. And I think there's a reason for that. 
In the parable of the wicked tenant, Jesus denounces the stewardship of those who were in charge of keeping the faith. Right here in Matthew 21, 45 through 46, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the people regarded him, Jesus, as a prophet. So Jesus is speaking directly to the religious authorities, and he's rendering a substantial judgment against them. And we know that the crowds following Jesus are becoming to be an issue. Uh, They're becoming an issue for the ruling authorities of the time. And in the very next parable, Jesus opens with these mysterious words, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son. Historically, we have to keep in mind that all of these words, all of these stories are being uttered in the context of the Roman Empire. The greatest empire that the world had ever seen up to this point. And we have Jesus talking about another kingdom entirely. And if we look a little bit uh, further back in the Bible, in 1 Kings, um, actually, sorry, the, the preceding chapter here has Jesus' Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he comes in on a donkey, which, if we read 1 Kings, that's the same way that King David made uh, his son, Solomon, king, processing on a donkey. So Jesus entered to the reception of a large group of people, And now Jesus, to the crowds that are following him and to the ruling authorities, is preaching of a coming kingdom. And these are the grounds in which we arrive at our scripture today. It's the Pharisees and the so-called Herodians who approach Jesus, as the scripture says, with malice in their hearts. And it is significant here that the text explicitly mentions the pairing. We know the Pharisees' problem. But why bring the Herodians along? Well, the Herodians are basically servants of Herod, right? And it's easy to think about this uh, in terms of of power and influence, but the Herodians are basically in power because Rome is in power. They are proxies for the Roman government. So if the Pharisees can trick Jesus into saying something against the Roman Empire here and the Herodians can hear it, they will now have legal recourse to you know, get rid of Jesus. And as the story goes, they hand Jesus a denarius, a coin, and they ask him, is it lawful to voluntarily give Caesar tribute? It's a brilliant setup. Coins were Rome's way of hammering home who had complete sovereignty, who had complete power and influence People had to walk around with these things in their daily lives, and it had the emperor's inscription there all the time, right? And so there's a lot at stake here in Jesus' response, because if Jesus uh, assents or in any way uh, wilts at this question, um, he will basically uh, anger a large part of the Jewish population, the zealots, who viewed the taxation system of the Rome as corrupt, Uh, They didn't like it. They didn't like Roman rule, right? But if he overtly speaks against the tribute, 
um, the Herodians, taking account of Jesus' recent rhetoric of another kingdom and the large crowds that were following him, would have reason to think that, well, here's this man, and he's about to lead an insurrection against Rome. So then comes the moment of truth. Jesus takes the coin, and he poses a question. Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Now, the word for image, akon in Greek, is directly parallel to the term used for likeness in Hebrew. The same word from the book of Genesis, when God said, let us make man in our image, our likeness. The Pharisees, being teachers of the law, would have recognized immediately this rhetorical move uh, by Jesus. Jesus is essentially saying, and this is my interpretation, give back to Caesar this token of his sovereignty, this reminder of his power. It ought to have no power over you, you who were made in the likeness of the most holy God. You who know well that Caesar's claim to absolute sovereignty in your lives is a direct contradiction to God's claim on your life. You were made with God. You were made in God's likeness. God desires a relationship with you. God loves you. So whose likeness do you carry, that of Caesar's or that of God's? You sellouts. Now, my interpretation sounds harsh, but Jesus said hypocrites. So that was Jesus. I think I'm being a little generous here. For the Herodians and Pharisees, they clung to a power and influence that they knew could not align ultimately with their values and their faith. Why? Because it kept them in power. It kept them comfortable in their social status. It kept them comfortable, just in general. In other words, their reliance on the temporal powers and influence on the day took precedence over the eternal power that the ultimate power and influence God ought to hold. In other words, they gained the world, but they forfeited their souls. So church, where are we in this story? What about us? What symbols of power and influence are we in danger of giving too high a place? Where have we compromised God's ultimate sovereignty in our lives for notions of comfort, convenience, or power? Now, this may seem trivial, right? But we must recognize that this move, even in our hearts and minds, is critical. It's significant. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where your heart is, there goes all your time, your energy, your attention, your resources. Do we compromise our status as God's children, made in God's likeness for lesser things? Do we give power to certain symbols so that they those symbols ultimately define us. 
Do we sell out? Does our faith become a commodity that only has power in our lives in moments of convenience or moments uh, where the opportunity for personal gain is upon us? Is Christ Lord of our lives, every part of them? Is Christ Lord over our careers, our civic offices, our jobs, our relationships? Yes, church. Is Christ Lord even over our politics? So let me be clear. I didn't bring up Aggies at the beginning of this sermon to use them as examples of people who have exchanged God's status, uh, children, uh, for being children of Texas A&M. That, that wasn't the point. Some of the best people that I know, Kaylee included, are among the best Christians that I know. Because some of us know that uh, some of these symbols, uh, some of these symbols are, are, are ends in themselves, so we are able to look beyond them. But we have to remember that symbols that we fill our lives with, the signs that we pay homage to voluntarily, are only as powerful as what they can give. So nationalistic identity, political persuasion, money, the makers of our cars, right? The, the signs on our coffee mugs, bumper stickers, all of those things cannot give us life, though some may claim to do so. But if we are using these symbols... If we are using these symbols as the Pharisees use them to retain power over others, to retain a sense of, of self-importance by championing symbols or people who stand in blatant contradiction of Christian values, we ought to re-examine and reflect on our fidelity toward those things. Because all of us here, me, you, were created, made in the image and likeness of God. So shouldn't our lives point to the ultimate, uh, to the person who we ultimately profess is Lord over our lives? And what Jesus is saying, I think, in this scripture is, is in that witness, church, there can be no contradiction. The denarius ends with Caesar. Our lives end with God. And God is good, God is true, God is beautiful, God is love. In God's likeness, we were made. And that's a wonderful and a lovely gift. So we should never allow ourselves or those around us to settle for any cheap imitation of or twisted use of power that aims to claim us in the ways that God would claim us. We should stand against those who would seek to exploit others using such powers. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give therefore to God the things that are of God. Our lives are God's. And this is both a gift and a tremendous responsibility. So may we go 
May we learn to carry God's likeness into every facet of our lives. Amen?